Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Douglas Ollivant, who is a military strategist and a member of what has been labeled as General David Petraeus's brain trust. Doug, welcome to Profiles. Thank you very much. You majored in political science at Wheaton College. How did you get interested in political science? I was always interested in politics. I never had any doubts. I, I was never an undeclared major. I, I never started in something else and went there. I always knew that was – I was interested in government, how government worked, how power was distributed, um, even if I couldn't quite articulate it that way when I was 17 or 18 probably. But that was, that was always what I was focused on and uh, it never changed my mind. All my degrees uh, since then have all been in politics. No family background or anything like that? that would no, have done no. My, my, my father cuts trees. My mother's a elementary school teacher. When did a military career come into play? It actually came the other way around. I grew up in Oregon, really wanted to get out of state, see another part of the world, and wanted to go somewhere else. Uh, again, my father cut trees, so there wasn't a lot of money on the table. And uh, the Army was willing to pay for me to go to school. And that sounded like a good deal to me. Hmm. What were your impressions of the military when you first went on duty? It was the early 90s, and you know, the, the Cold War was, was just coming to a close. Right after I went on active duty, we had the full, first Gulf War. The Panama invasion actually happened while I was in the, the training pipeline. The Panama invasion in 1989, and then uh, I was uh, at Fort Ord, California, when the first Gulf War broke out in 1990. Um, but the unit that I was in, the 7th Infantry Division, was designated as the Strategic Reserve in case the North Koreans decided to invade while we were occupied in, uh, in Iraq. So I got to watch the first Gulf War on TV. What was your impressions? This is uh, This would have been... 15 years after the end of Vietnam, did you sense a, a different orientation? I think as, as a whole, we were too young to really have impressions about what really happened or didn't happen in Vietnam. Um, you know, my elders, when I first came in the Army, there were you know, the older generation, the very old lieutenant colonels, the colonels, the generals, um, all had Vietnam experience. But to us, that was really, you know, that was something that the old people had done. And we, I don't think we really had solid views on what had happened or, or had, had not happened, whether it was something we had done right or, or, or whether, whether the Army had done something wrong or whether the Army had done, more or less done what it had been told and it was just a political problem or whether it was just totally unsolvable in the first place. I don't think any of us really wrestled with those questions. We just know it had you know, been a long time ago. What did you learn from the experience of those first few years? I learned a lot about working with other people. I learned a lot about America. The, uh, the military is still one of the best um, integrating institutions um, in the country for the last 20 years. As we say, it's the only place in, in America where black people routinely tell white people what to do on a, on a daily basis. You know, it's, it's very integrated. You work with people from all over the country, from you know, as, as you know, from, from deep Alabama, from uh, the inner cities. Um, and it gives you a, a very interesting snapshot of what um, at least a you know lower middle class to upper middle class America looks like across the country. When was your first combat experience? As I tell people uh, jokingly, I spent the first 15 years of my life uh, avoiding military – actual military combat. And there were lots of opportunities. As I said, I was in the training pipeline during uh, the Panama 
Uh, we talked about the first Gulf War, which you know we, I was designated as a anti-Korea force for, so so didn't go to. Then the unit that I was in, again, the 7th Infantry Division, during the downsizing was designated to downsize. And so by the time Somalia came around, we were busy, you know, turning in equipment, so didn't play with that. Uh, then the Balkans came along. By the time that happened, I was in the, the training pipeline to go teach at West Point. So the closest thing I experienced to combat prior to going to Baghdad in 2004 was actually Joint Task Force Los Angeles. I spent about two weeks in Los Angeles uh, during the Rodney King riots. Uh, Not exactly combat, but in retrospect, probably about the best preparation for Baghdad I could have had. You came to Indiana in, what, mid-90s? 1997. I was on campus 97 to 99. Was this your idea or did somebody say, you know, you'd be good at, at teaching? They reached out to me. Yeah, they. I'd. Uh, I think they took a look at my, you know, SAT scores, which are, you know, I have a gift for standardized tests. So I think they looked at that, figured I'd probably do pretty well on the GRE, could get into a, a a good graduate school, and could then go teach politics at West Point. And they offered me this deal, and that sounded like, you know, again, another good educational deal from the Army. And I signed up, and came here in 1997. Why did you um, I called uh, one of my undergrad professors from Wheaton, and he told me that uh, two of the people who were here teaching at the time, political science, were both good friends of his that he'd known for a long time, and I uh, thought I'd get a really great education here. And I knew no better, so I said, okay. Your dissertation was on Thomas Jefferson's pursuit of happiness. That doesn't sound like a subject that a military man would write about. I wanted to do something a little bit different. I, I was talking with all my military officer friends the whole time, of course. We stayed in touch and were emailing and, and doing phone calls. And they were all doing things very, very focused on the military, on you know, military innovation and military organizations and you know, theories of international conflict. And I wanted to do something you know, very, very academic, give myself something – a different skill set to draw on. And I, I became very, very interested in political theory when I got to IU and, and met Russ Hansen and Jeff Isaac. Um, was was very enchanted by that and so wanted to do something in political theory. And uh, you know, Russ's specialty is in American political theory, so I decided it made more sense to do something like that with him. And he and I negotiated and talked about a bunch of topics, and this is kind of what he and I mutually decided it would be interesting for me to research. What was your conclusion? Can you summarize? I know it's hard to summarize. <laughs> it's awfully a hard to dissertation. dissertation. Yeah. My dissertation question was what was the significance of Jefferson's use of the term life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness when the traditional formulation in the liberal literature is life, liberty, and property. So like all dissertations, it's a very esoteric, very academic, very very dry topic, but allowed me to explore some some aspects of Jefferson's republicanism, his view of the good life, his agrarianism. Actually, let me deal with the good side of Jefferson and, and, you know, Leave the other side to other people to explore. Was it difficult to adapt to graduate school experience where there's much more give and take after having been in the hierarchical army? I, I didn't have any problem. I, I don't think most most people do. It's, it's much easier to ramp down than to ramp up. And some of the skills that you uh, that you acquire in the military actually work really well in graduate school. Um, one of my friends, when I was calling him, he was a year ahead of me, also going to graduate school. And I called him a little concerned about the experience. He's like, oh, Doug, he's like, as long as you turn in your assignments in time, you're in the top third right there. Um, and, you know, you're a military officer. You can do that. And, and, and actually, that was pretty good advice. So, 
No, it, it wasn't a problem at all. You didn't refer to the professors as sir? I did not. I did not. Okay. Then when did you go to West Point? Uh, so when I left uh, Indiana in 1999, I went to West Point. I taught there from the fall of 1999 to the spring of 2002. And what kind of experience was that, um, teaching people who will be future officers who have a very heavy schedule compared to the average um, undergraduate student? It was a great experience. Um, and what's interesting about that, the West Point teaching experience, is that you know that you're teaching people that you're then going to go out to the institution and work with. So when I later showed up in the field in 2004, 2005, there were scatterings of, you know, no longer kids, you know, people I thought of as kids, but, you know, now 23, 24-year-old officers that I'd taught. You understand the whole time you're teaching that you're, you're vested in this process and you're, you're going to have to live with the product uh, that comes out of West Point. Um, West Point's a, a wonderful institution in some ways. It, uh, it, it instills discipline. Uh, the core curriculum there is very, very broad. You know, it's probably the only place that people take, you know, two years of math and but also have a fairly rigorous liberal arts requirement. Um, but they're, they're very highly scheduled. Uh, the downside of that is it's very difficult for someone to really follow a passion at West Point, I've found. You know, if someone really wants to explore a, a certain aspect in a certain field, it's, it's very difficult for them to do that given, given how tightly they're scheduled. Would you want to go back and teach there sometime in the future? I'm not in the teaching mode right now, but uh, I'm not, I wouldn't close that off. I wouldn't mind teaching when I, when I finish the things I'm working on at the moment. Now, 2000, the, the time period that you were there was, if I'm thinking correctly, a, a time of less U.S. military involvement than there had been before and then there would be after. Different kind of students then? No, actually, I think remarkably similar. I, I think – West Point draws on a, a very similar demographic and I don't think – and of course, everyone does everything for different reasons and everyone has their own story of how they ended up at West Point. But I think in the main, it's not about what happened yesterday. It's about a much longer time period. It's about the tradition of West Point. It's about a, a sense of military service. It's not about you know, you know what happened on 9-11 or what happened in the Gulf War or what happened. I don't think it's about a certain formative event. I think in general it's a, it's a longer time frame that people are looking at. And I think the admissions officers at West Point would tell you that, that you know, there may be a little rise, a little fall in applications as world events happen. But it's a pretty small variation around a, a constant level of interest in the institution. Could you have stayed longer if you had wanted to? No. The military runs a program for what they call their rotating faculty. As you know, the, the military has a, a pretty has, – has a timeline of how you progress through the ranks. It's very hard to bust that timeline quickly no matter how talented you are. You know, even a, you know, a Dave Petraea spends a long time as a captain and a long time as a major. You command with troops as a fairly junior captain. You've commanded your company and then the Army really doesn't have anything you know, for you to do with troops until four or five years later when they're going to need you as a battalion operations officer, battalion second in command. So there's a four or five-year window where they need to find something for you to do. So the military runs what they call their rotating faculty program, send you to two years of graduate school. You teach for three years at West Point and then not coincidentally, you then are back available for the personnel system just about the time they need you as a now more mature, seasoned, uh, what they call a field-grade officer. Mm -hmm. What did you do then in, in 2002? Where did you go? 
Uh, I left West Point. I went to Fort Leavenworth where I spent two years. I spent one year in the Command and General Staff College, which is the standard mid-career course that uh, military officers go to. And then I spent a second year uh, in a much smaller group at the School of Advanced Military Studies, which is the Army's uh, institution school for operational artists and, and strategists. Is that when you really got interested in being a writer and thinker about strategy? About strategy, probably. That's when I, I, I tell people in some ways that was my military postdoc. You know, my IU PhD was awarded in 2002. I wrote my dissertation the whole time I was teaching at West Point in my, you know, quote, spare time. Finished that and was awarded my PhD in 2002. And I do describe those two years as kind of my, my military postdoc where I took the academic training that I'd gotten from IU in political theory and then and only then started to really think about how would I apply this and how could I take these insights um, and gain some new perspectives on how we do military strategy and military art. So you were at Fort Leavenworth at the time that the U.S. invaded Iraq. Um, in 2003. Oh, yeah. At this point, I'm still in my I don't get to go to war phase. So right. I'm, you know, I'm sitting at West Point when, you know, for 9-11 and for the invasion of Afghanistan. Um, and then I'm at Fort Leavenworth as Afghanistan and what we think is Afghanistan's ramp down and, uh, and the initial invasion of Iraq. I'm still sitting out wars. Yeah. So what was it like being in a place like Fort Leavenworth at the time of the invasion? Was it everybody saying, yes, we agree that this is what we should do? There's good rationale outlined? It's easy to forget that there there was a lot of consensus in the initial days about the invasion of Iraq. You know, as you probably recall, the congressional resolution for the invasion of Iraq was pretty overwhelming, very few dissenters. And certainly within the institution, I mean, we all really did think that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and this was the right thing to do. So, no, there was not a lot of a lot of dissent and, and we applauded the, the rapid movement to Baghdad, although I think there were some of us who were a little concerned about, you know, what are we going to do when we get there and is moving this quickly really the right – even at that point, some of us were suspicious about this, you know, let's do things really, really fast and not think about what's not happening as we're doing things really fast. Did any of your superiors talk about those kinds of things? Sure. We all we, we all talked about this. Actually, the whole time I was there at Leavenworth, an old friend of mine um, that I'd worked with for in the early to mid-90s um, was then a one-star general there at Fort Leavenworth. So I spent a lot of evenings on his porch drinking beer, talking with him and his friends and, yeah, working through all these concepts and kind of assessing and, you know, is this working? What do we think of this? Uh, you know, how would we have done that differently? Now, before we put you in Iraq, uh, <laughs> because you were finally uh, going to see some combat, let's stop and listen to some music uh, you've chosen by the police. Why that choice? That was uh, that was a song I listened to almost every day when I was in Baghdad. It was um, was it, it became kind of a theme song for me, particularly on my second tour. You know, this is a mess. This is not going well. Um, but you know, we're going to do the best we can. We're going to play the game, and uh, we'll we'll see where it takes us. And, and uh, well, we'll get to we'll get to what happens.
When the World is Running Down by the Police. Music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Douglas Ollivant. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. What was your reaction when you learned that you were going to be um, sent to Baghdad and face real combat experience for the first time? Resignation and accepting, you know, this is um, and almost a sense of relief. I mean, this is what people like me are supposed to be doing. And uh, as we've covered, I'd, I'd somehow, man, you know, not through my own devices by any means, but I'd still managed to evade it for 15 years. And you know, it's about time it caught up with me. When exactly in 2004 did you go? Because if, as I recall, that was the year that things began to look, at least from the outside, as if they were apparently going downhill. It was getting to be a more dangerous situation. It was. I got there in uh, about the 15th of June, uh, give or take a day or two. So just before we uh, did the transition of sovereignty to uh, to the Iraqis, which I think was just a day or two before the 1st of July. What what exactly did you do there during those two years? I was a battalion's operations officer. I was, I was only there for about nine months uh, that first tour. So I was there from June of 2004 to February of 2005. Uh, I spent most of my time, well, uh, uh, the bulk of my time, in a uh, suburb of Baghdad called Qadamiya, which is the uh, Shia religious district. There's a large um, Shia shrine, probably the third or fourth, I have to count, but a significant Shia shrine there in, uh, in Baghdad. And it has, a, of course, then a huge religious district has grown up around it. So I learned a lot about intra-Shia politics, about the uh, the Badr Corps and uh, the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq, um, about the Dawa Party, about the Sadrists and the uh, you know what the what it meant to be a Sadrist and who the first martyr was, who the second martyr was, uh, you know the family line that uh, Muqtada al Sadr, um, the youngest son that we got to deal with a lot, not, well not that we had to react to a lot. Um, the line that he came from. So learned a learned a ton about the uh, the interesting um, religious interdynamics going on in Iraq. Were the officers there as things went downhill concerned? What were what were they thinking? Yeah, people were concerned. Their responses, of course, varied. Um, the division at the time was led by one of the best generals that the, the military has produced, uh, Peter Corelli, uh, who's now the vice chief of staff of the army, is a four-star and is about to retire, I believe. Uh, but he was the two-star commander there in Baghdad at the time, um, who had a, a much broader vision, who understood that you know this isn't just about killing people, that we need to be um, helping restore the economic situation, that we need to build some infrastructure, that... Uh, that people would probably be a lot happier if we got the standing sewage off the streets. Um, he, had, he had a passion for sewage. A, a visionary. Now, not everyone who worked for him was. Um, lots of people in between who didn't quite have the vision. But then in my little circle, I was also really fortunate to work for a very, very talented lieutenant colonel, uh, probably the best counterinsurgent I ever met. I tell people everything I know about counterinsurgency I learned from Miles Miyamasu. So he and I worked very, very closely together. And then there was a third officer who had become very important to me, a very young man named Eric Tuning, who was a University of Chicago graduate and actually had been working for Merrill Lynch in their Chicago office on 9-11 and uh, you know, lost a lot of friends he'd been doing deals with in the World Trade Center bombing. And about a week later, went down to a recruiting office and just signed up on what we call an OCS contract to become a young officer. So I get to this battalion and he's the intelligence officer and obviously, you know, very, very talented, has a broad view, 
could really, really engage with the Iraqis, as he used to put it to me. You know, he's like, I've closed eight and nine figure deals. You know, what's talking to some Iraqi sheik? You know, he and I became very, very kindred spirits, worked very, very closely together. And actually, we've stayed close. We've written articles together. Um, that began a very interesting partnership between me and Eric. Did, did you ever have any formal studies in counterinsurgency? No. No, I had none. I had not read any of the classic literature on it. Uh, you know, my my friend, John Noggle, is, you know, is very, very famous for some of his um, research that he'd been doing on counterinsurgency prior to that. We were at West Point together, but we didn't talk about our work. You know, I knew he was writing on counterinsurgency, but that's as far as it went. I really wasn't all that interested in it. So, yeah, I, I sometimes describe myself as an accidental counterinsurgent. I really didn't get interested in it until I had to do it. Have you ever looked back at some of the debate and discussion that went on about uh, insurgency action in Vietnam? I've, I've read a, a lot of the insurgent literature since I came back from that first uh, Baghdad tour. So sure, I've, I've, I've read, a, read a lot of that and, and uh, explored what was, what was going on with you know, various programs, Chords, Phoenix, which in, in some ways are, are prototypes of, of what we do now. In 2006-2007, you and uh, Eric Chuning co-authored a couple of articles on changing strategy. Could you describe for us uh, what you were, were articulating in those articles? Sure. Uh, in our first piece, we essentially wrote about how we thought that – you got to remember, it's, it's 2005 and the strategy in Iraq is still let's get onto the, ba- the big bases. Let's get away from the people. The prevailing view, which is not wholly wrong, is that the American presence in Iraq um, generated what uh, General Abizade, then the CENTCOM commander who was one of the big articulators of this theory, called antibodies. You know, that our presence is the source of instability. It's what's causing the insurgency and therefore we need to pull back onto the big bases, minimize our contact with the people, essentially, you know, become less offensive to them and get onto the big bases. Eric and I acknowledged there was some truth in that, but at the same time thought that we really did need to interact with the people more, that there was particularly immediately after a society is overthrown, when the institutions are just not working yet, when they're very immature, when there isn't a functioning government, let alone security services, that there was a broader role for the Americans. And we talked about how you could do that, advising the security forces, maintaining contact with the population, developing intelligence sources with them. And, and generally being more present. Fast forward a couple of years and when General Petraeus comes to Baghdad, um, what Eric and I had written was uh, very, very close to the model that he had in his head of, uh, of what should be done. And he uh, literally one day sent me an email out of the blue. I'm the chief of plans for Baghdad at this point. I've never met the man. And he sends me an email and says, Doug, you know, I hope this reaches you. Do you still believe what you wrote in your article, Producing Victory, and do you think you can do it in Baghdad with the 1st Cavalry Division? You know, that, was, that was a heady time, which then brought Eric and I to write the second piece, uh, which I think we called a postscript for implementation or something like that. Because as we wrote the piece, we really – we didn't write it specifically for Iraq. We thought that the path for Iraq was pretty much set, that we were going to stay on our plan of withdraw- getting these big bases and then withdrawing. So we were really writing it about how do we do the next couple wars, you know, in you – know, whether that's five years from now or 15 or 50, how would we want to do this next time? When we realized, no, we're really going to do this in Iraq, we wrote a, a very specific piece on how we thought our ideas would fit in Iraq. Some people would probably be wondering, how, how is it that you can be writing what I guess would interpretive 
uh, opinion type articles and yet you're in the army? You have to be careful, but there are venues. the The military has its own in house journals, um, and so there's you know there's some oversight, and so you can write for the in house journals and um, still remain within the, the boundaries of the institution. That's that's fully allowed and fully, you know, had I had we submitted this piece to you know the American Political Science Review, not that it was the kind of thing they'd publish an academic journal or say a you know a public opinion piece, that would have been a little bit different. But because we published it in Military Review and it went through you know, an official military publication, um, it was to be allowed. And actually, Military Review is one of the interesting stories of the 2004 to 2007 period. There's a very, very lively intellectual debate that goes on in the pages of Military Review. Lots of very interesting articles, some of them very, very critical of, of, uh, of what is happening. And it's in those pages that I think you see the – the intellectual churning of the military, trying to figure out, you know, how do we do this? How do we move forward? Um, and clearly something's not going right. Um, how could we fix it? Perhaps a subject for somebody's dissertation in the future. I'm sure it will be. I think the term was used once uh, to refer to you as a warrior intellectual. How is somebody like that accepted in the military in general? Well, in general, we're not. We do tend to get purged relatively early. You know, I, it's... Um, it's hard to maintain those those two sides of yourself, and, and quite understandably, you know, the military wants people who have spent a lot of time focusing on you know, fighting wars and leading troops. And those of us who took uh, you know five year sabbaticals to go to graduate school and teach at West Point don't necessarily have that same skill set. Now, it's interesting because, of course, that skill set would become much more useful when you get to two, three, four-star level. But in the interim period, as you know, lieutenant colonels and full colonels, I think anyone would you know, candidly have to say you're just not at the same level as someone who has you know, been spending those years you were in graduate school you know, out in the field or the training centers or you know, and somehow engrossed in military doctrine uh, in a purer sense. So, you know, I retired as lieutenant colonel. John Noggle retired as lieutenant colonel. Paul Yingling is about to retire as a, you know, as a staff colonel. Quite famously, we, you know, with, with some notable exceptions, Dave, Dave Petraeus being the, the one, I guess. Um, what was it like then trying to implement the policy that you were proposing? There was, a, there was a sense of a world historical moment. It was very clear that things were very, very bad in Baghdad. And I think we could, we could all see that you know, the Iraq experiment going you know, really, really bad would be bad for the United States. It would be bad for the internal politics. It would have been an incredibly divisive issue here in the States for a long time. It would have been bad for the military. It, it really couldn't afford. It did not want to go through another post-Vietnam um, introspective. Um, there would have been lot, not to mention the consequences for the Iraqis, which would have been m more immediate and painful. So – we could see that this was this was not good, and we had a real sense of urgency that something needs to be done. And uh, it was a very heady time. Getting you know, as as Iraq started to turn, we got the resources. General Petraeus comes to town. There's a new sense of uh, urgency and priority. Did you feel, you know, maybe you were not. Uh, at a high enough rank, but did you feel any difference between the Bush administration and the Obama administration? Well, God, by that time, I'm, I'm working in the White House. So that's a, well, yes and no. There's a very different attitude. But by that point, 
And again, we're fast forwarding over you know three years of history in there. But by that point, the policies of the two administrations are actually remarkably the same. And the the, the problem we really faced in two thousand nine was how do we somehow make this policy looked different enough for President Obama that he can plausibly claim to his base that he's changing the policy. When in, in fact, in 2008, you know, President Bush had, had really brought the, you know, he essentially brought the Iraq war to an end. And as I tell people, you know, now in 2011, we're seeing President Obama implement the withdrawal agreement that was signed by his, by his Republican predecessor in 2008. Dropping back just a, a little bit, how important in your view is what I guess is popularly known or generally known as the surge? I've written a long paper on it, but uh, let me summarize. I think that the popular conception of the surge, which I described as essentially, you know, take 30,000 troops, you know, add a really charismatic general, you know, throw in counterinsurgency theory and, you know, drinking lots of tea and shake – and and a country settles down. I don't think it's nearly that simple. As I said, in retrospect, what we had in Iraq was a civil war between the two sectarian sides. And I think that sometime in late 2006, 2007, that civil war started to burn out. Not that there was, weren't still places where it was very nasty, but taken as a whole, it started to burn out. Um, so I think what the, the surge did was it accelerated the calming of the civil war and it created conditions where Iraqi politicians could reach a negotiated settlement to the civil war. Um, the troops were important. General Petraeus was important. I think we you know, provided dampers and, and I think we did bring the civil war to a close faster than it would have, although it was independently on its own path to close. Um, I think the clear political signal from President Bush was very, very important. Um, you know, in retrospect, that was not a popular speech that he gave in in January of uh, of 2007. Although it was a very clear one, so I tell people, you know, you may have liked the speech, you may have disliked the speech, but you didn't wonder what you just heard. And the Iraqis heard it too, and they knew that they had two years of more or less unconditional American support um, in which to work out their differences. And uh, I think I'll. All those things taken together, you know, the political support, the troops, but most importantly, the trend that's actually going on in Iraq. And this is this is a point I try to bring out whenever I can. Um, there's a tendency for Americans to think that you know we are the prime actors, that we have the primary agency. Um, and in fact, when you're going to someone else's country, usually it's it's really them that are in charge. We can contour, we can help, we can prod. But uh, if they want things to be settled, they can settle them. If they really don't want things to be settled, there's probably nothing we can do. What are the lessons that the United States and the U.S. Army learned in Iraq? Well, I think we're still fighting about what those are. Um, so I'm not sure we have a consensus yet. Even w within the Army, there's still lots of contention over, you know, you know should we be doing – kinder, gentler, you know, what some have described as armed social work, you know, should we be focused on building economic institutions, you know, helping clean up infrastructure, you know, making sure the sewage gets drained off the street, or is that really just not what an army should do? An army at the end of the day is about breaking things and killing people, and that's what we need to focus on. And, uh, you know, if the U.S. government wants those other things done, then it needs to generate the capacity to, to send civilians from state or aid or, or whoever to come in and do that. There's, there's a very, very active debate in the Army over um, 
what are the right lessons that we should be drawing from Iraq? And of course, then this is all contoured by Afghanistan and how it's working there as well. Let's take a pause for some more music. At this point, it is God Bless the Child from Blood, Sweat and Tears. Um, yeah, I like this record. Of course, this is an old standard and it's a wonderful song about, uh, you know, about pulling yourself up. Um, of course, it also, you know, these days rings very, very interestingly with the, you know, them that's got some have, them that's not shall lose. Um, and, you know, who are the 1% and the 99%? You can hear it that way, but I really hear it as a, you know, a song about, you know, you, you got to lift yourself up. You got to have your own. God Bless the Child by Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, more music from our guest today, Douglas Ollivant. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Did you serve at all in Afghanistan? Not as a military officer. I went over as a contractor in uh, 2010 and uh, just came back to the States in March of 2011. How did you see that uh, through the eyes of somebody who had spent time in Iraq? It was very different. And I thought, I thought the real issue that the army was facing in Afghanistan, or one of, the, one of the real issues that the army was facing, was it's very, very tempting to come from Iraq to Afghanistan and see Afghanistan through an Iraq lens. Whereas I tell people that, I, you know, the, the first, I think the first part of wisdom if you're an Iraq person, as I was, and coming to Afghanistan is to realize that everything or a significant portion of what you learned in Iraq is not only not relevant but could be a handicap um, when you're trying to see this situation, which is similar in some ways but incredibly different in others. And if you try to look at it through the similarities, you're going to miss the differences. And what do you see as the most important differences? The most important difference is that Iraq is a 20th century country. Maybe an early 20th century country, but it's a 20th century country. It's got a seaport. It's got roads. It's got literacy. It's got engineers. It's got infrastructure. Even if the infrastructure is decaying, it has infrastructures. I mean, they fielded tank armies at one point. They knew how to use artillery. Once upon a time, they had an air force for the region. They have a very, very high view of women. Um, you know, they allow them to have public roles in society. It's a 20th century country. Uh, Afghanistan is not. It's not a 20th century country. It's not even a coherent nation state. Um, 
There are, you know, you go up places in the hills and, and they may not know Kabul exists, let alone that they should acknowledge that Kabul is the capital of their country and that they might want to think about doing what the people there um, tell them to do. Those are, those are foreign concepts. So it's, you know, it, you know, the cliche is it's a 13th century country. I think that's a bit strong, but it's, it's not a 20th century nation state. It's been part of the struggle, the, the great game. Um, the British were there. Um, the Soviets were there. The U.S. was there. What is, what, what's it going to be like when the U.S. troops are gone? It depends on how the U.S. troops leave and what's, what happens there and what are the political arrangements. You're, you're right. There's absolutely a great game being played in Afghanistan. And to understand what's going on in Afghanistan, you have to start at the, the western border or the eastern border of Iran and probably come all the way across through Pakistan, India and to the western border of China and, and everyone in that band you know, and go up into the former Soviet stands and then all the way down. It's, there are lots of people with interest in what's going on in Afghanistan or at least – or countries that touch Afghanistan and, and therefore have some interest. Um, it's a complex region and the politics are Byzantine. And uh, it's really hard to understand. I've, I've been now focused on Afghanistan for you know, a year, two years, and I, I don't pretend to understand. I really fundamentally understand what's going on with the politics. Let's go back to um, a step you mentioned earlier, having worked in the White House. How did you get there? I'm not totally sure. I suspect that uh, General Petraeus had something to do with it. I suspect that uh, General Corelli had something to do with it both of whom knew um, Lieutenant General Doug Lute, whom I worked for, who at the time was called the War Czar. Um, he was responsible for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and he called me out of the blue one day when I was in fact Actually, that's not true. His aide sent me an email. And so I called back his military aide, who was a Marine Corps lieutenant colonel, a peer of mine. Um, and he instantly put uh, General Lute on the phone. He said he wants to talk to you. And you know, after we went through some administrative stuff, he said, uh, I hear you tell people things that they don't want to hear. I said, well, I've been accused of that. And he said, good, I need you. At this point, I knew I, I knew I wanted to work for this man. So we went through a little more administrative stuff. And at the end, he's like, well, anything you want to say or need to tell me? And I said, well, I, I think I need to be candid with you. I said, I would love to have this job. I would love to come work for you. But I don't know anything about Washington. You know, I, I interned in Congress when I was, you know, at undergraduate, but I don't think that counts. I've never worked in the Pentagon. I've never been stationed there. I, I don't know what I can do for you. And Doug Lute paused for a second and then said, Doug, I can take someone who knows Baghdad and teach them Washington. I can't do it the other way around. And of course, at this point, I knew I really, really wanted to work for this man. And he was uh, one of the best bosses I ever had. I learned a ton about Washington, how you make policy, how you influence things, how to uh, drag people, you know, drag institutions kicking and screaming to do things that the president wants them to do but that they would really prefer not to be doing. Uh, it was a uh, incredible education in Washington politics. What, what precisely was your role? I was a uh, director for Iraq was the title on the National Security Council. And uh, so we're the president's action officers for things in national security. Essentially, if I was to put it in a sentence, I would say you know the National Security Council – coordinates at one level, but then most importantly ensures that policy is implemented. Because again, you know, there's a, there's a wide-ranging bureaucracy and for anyone who studied politics, they know that bureaucracies have their own preferences which don't necessarily align with those of the uh, 
you know, the president and, and the, the people that he appoints. And so you know, the president may say, I want this done, but bureaucracies may drag their feet. So people like me who work directly for the president, you know, through some intermediaries, it's not like I went to his office all the time or anything, but those of us who work for the president supervise the bureaucracies and keep calling them in and saying, okay, the president wants you to do this. We've established this. And, you know, are, are you moving on this? And, uh, you know, if they're not, it's a question of are, are you going to fix this or do I need to bump this up to my boss to talk to your boss? And, you know, then conceivably it could go a couple levels higher and, you know, can we resolve this at our level or do we need to bump this higher? And we just continue to do that with the, the bureaucracy and keep moving policy forward. I would ask the same question. Was the way you do things in the White House different from the way that you do them in the military in a way that yes. challenges yes. you? Yes, yes. In the military, you give orders and they are more or less within a you know a small standard deviation left or right. They are more or less complied with and uh, and you do them. You know, the, the the National Security Council, you know, the president and his senior cabinet can meet and sign a paper and say that we're going to do this and, and still bureaucracies will decide they just don't want to do that. And at this level, that includes the Pentagon. I mean, you know, it's, it's um, you know, I don't want to single out anyone else. You know, so the Pentagon, the State Department, um, the Justice Department to the extent they played, you know, with the FBI and pushing agents to Iraq. And again, I, I see this all through an Iraq lens. There's lots of other policies going on, but I was working in Iraq. You know, there are things they'd rather not do. They have other priorities, you know, particularly, say, you know, with the Department of Justice, you know, sending FBI agents to Iraq is not high on their internal list of priorities. Um, and they have other things they'd rather be doing with FBI agents. And you have to continually come back and say, well, yes, I understand that, but the president wants you to send, you know, X number of FBI. How are you going? You know, have you identified them? Are they, have they gotten their shots? Are they, you know, in the pipeline? Are they ready to go? And you have to keep coming back to that. Yeah, I don't want to pick on the FBI. Again, state and DOD also had their own things they were dragging their heels on. And this is normal politics. This happens all the time. It's, and it's not that – it's not because it was President Bush and it's not because – you know, of the particular policy. It's it's just bureaucracy. Did you retire at the end of the White House? Tour? I did. I retired out of the White House. Of the uh, Appropriately, the, the Secretary of War Suite, uh, General Lute, uh, hosted my retirement ceremony in the executive office building right next to the White House, not in the White House proper, but on the White House grounds. And uh, it, was a, it was a nice climax. Why, why did you choose to leave at that point? It had been made clear to me that I that my future in the Army wasn't, you know, I could stick around, but I was never going to be a general, and I decided I could do uh, – I could probably contribute more uh, as a retired uh, civilian. How did you choose to organize your life as a uh, newly minted civilian? <laughs> well, I uh, did some work in uh, – I actually worked in uh, – for a private equity joint venture for a couple months um, before figuring out 2009 was not a good year to try to – Work in private equity. That was uh, not a, not a good time. So coincidentally, about the about that Christmas, um, again, a good friend of mine that I'd worked in Baghdad was now a two star general, and he was going to Afghanistan. And a uh, another friend happened to call me up, a third party, and said, "You know, there's this uh, high end counterinsurgency advising contract, and the job in Regional Command East, the eastern part of Afghanistan that borders Pakistan, uh, is coming open." and Coincidentally, that was where my friend was going to command. So I gave him a call and said, you know, could you think I could help? Do you think you could use me? He was like, yeah, please come. And uh, I was, you know, 
this uh, joint venture was uh, starting to collapse around me. And so it did both because I needed something to do and because my friend was going and because I, you know, it was uh, in my sweet spot of doing counterinsurgency advising. This just seemed like exactly the right thing to do. And off I went. Do you see yourself doing this sort of thing for the rest of your working life? Um, I don't think so. I mean, it's certainly always an option. And, and I do like working in these conflict zones. And I mean, so I'll probably be playing around with it. But I'm, I'm now working, doing some other things. I'm, uh, you know, working in another startup, We're working with uh, technology with IBM on promoting streams technology in some s- small markets um, in this community that I know, taking technology to problems that I've come to understand because of what I've been doing for the last four or five years and showing people how it could really help. I'm also a you know, senior fellow at New America, so I do some writing um, on this. New America Foundation has been a wonderful place. Peter Bergen recruited me to work there with him. They've been very good to me. But um, – yeah, it does get in your blood. And I, I must admit, I've been back in the States for a while. I came back in March of 2011. And I, I do have a little bit of wanderlust. I wouldn't mind going somewhere again for at least a few months. When I was preparing for this interview, one thing that, that struck me is that you've also written about Catholic thinkers, Jacques Maritain and Orestes Brownson. That doesn't sound like something a person of your background, military background, and Wheaton is certainly not a Catholic institution. How do you place. get there? I am a Catholic and uh, was uh, very interested in these thinkers. Um, I started with Maritain, but I became more and more impressed with Brownson. He's written some very interesting books, uh, thought about America um, through a, a slightly different lens, but as a as an American, looked at uh, you know the the American Republic. Um, a friend of mine describes it as the you know the second book best book on America and the second best book on democracy you know after Tocqueville's Democracy in America which is first on both counts. You know, another look at at how America works and you know how you can integrate the life of the mind and think about America. Want to come back then? I said that might be the last question, but let's go back to where we started. How does a Catholic wind up at Wheaton? I wasn't Catholic then. I'm a convert. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Our final piece of music is Waltz for Debbie uh, by Bill Evans with Monica Zetterlund. Yes. I love this piece. Bill Evans uh, composed it. What I like about this particular version is it it shows that uh, music is just this universal language. Monica sings this. I'm not sure if she's singing it in German or Swedish. I'm I'm tone deaf in that range. I, I do some romance languages. I don't do Germanic. But it's very, very clear as you listen that this is a song about innocence and or loss of innocence and or the impending loss of innocence, somewhere in that range. And you just – you can't miss what's being said even though, uh, you know, unless you understand Swedish, you're you're probably not going to follow the lyrics. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Douglas Ollivant, the Senior National Securities Fellow at the New America Foundation and, as we heard, involved in a number of other things as well. Doug, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. Ja, 
Filmar över vårt fönster Ritar ett mönster På alla hus Just den dag Den vackra dag Jag lärde mig säga vi Kom den till världen Min vals melodi Enkel The program you just heard was recorded in December of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.